0: Turn in your Bibles, friends, to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And if that sounds uh, like a repeat, that sounds familiar to you, it's because we were in Mark chapter 10 last week as well. But we're going to look at the very next passage. Our series of messages this summer is called Words of Life. We're looking at scenes out of the Gospels and the book of Acts where Jesus or the apostles are, are sharing the message of the kingdom... With, uh, with those who don't yet know him, and we're considering ways that we might learn from the, the, the example of Jesus and his uh, apostles in our own efforts to proclaim the good news of the kingdom to those in our own lives and communities and all around us. Last week, we looked at Mark 10, verses 13 through 16, where Jesus addressed an often-overlooked Group, but one that is clearly very important to him: children. And so we talked about Jesus' heart for children and the need for the church to be equally uh, passionate and engaged in reaching the next generation with the gospel of the kingdom. And the main, maybe one of the main points that he was making in those verses there to the adults in the crowd was that the kingdom of God is not attained by by power or purchased by wealth, but is granted to those who draw near to Jesus in humble faith. And the very next paragraph in Mark's gospel, we meet a man who thinks that he can gain the kingdom by his own righteousness. And so Mark, I think, has intentionally arranged these stories together. So that we see the contrast between the way that the kingdom of God comes to those who are humble, to those who recognize their need for Jesus and draw near to Him in simple faith, and those who think they have all that it takes or they've got the resume, the spiritual resume, to commend them to God. And so we meet one who is identified in the sort of headings of most Bibles as the rich young ruler or the rich young man. Let me read, uh, or we'll we'll just start, I don't think we're going to actually read the whole thing all at once. We're going to just walk through this story piece by piece. And I have five principles or, or observations to make along the way regarding our own sort of proclamation of the gospel So look at verse 17. It says, and as he, that's Jesus, as he was setting out on his journey, as Jesus continues going throughout the region and the towns to proclaim the kingdom, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Which is an interesting way to respond to that question. The the essence of the question seems to be, how can I be saved, right? How can I enter the kingdom of God? And so you might expect Jesus to give him a more direct answer. But he starts by sort of highlighting the fact that he's addressed him as good teacher. Why do you call me good? For no one is good except for God alone. Thereby, of course, we draw, we 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 infer that he's speaking of the brokenness, the fallenness of human beings. No human being, since Adam, uh, in himself, is good, right to the core. There are good things about us. We still bear the image of God, but we are fallen. We are broken. We have desires that are twisted. We have uh, goals that do not line up with the way and will of God. No one is good, truly in essence, good except for God alone. And I think the reason Jesus brings up his goodness and the question of his goodness is because he knows that this man's heart is enamored with his own goodness or his perception of his own goodness. And that becomes very clear in his response to what Jesus says next. So he's drawn this out. Why do you call me good? So the question of goodness, the question of righteousness, the question of wholeness is here right uh, from the beginning of the conversation. And so he answers him, verse 19, you know the commandments, and then he gives not an exhaustive list of commandments, not even all of the ten commandments, which is itself sort of a summary of the law, he just gives a few. You know the commandments, Uh, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. So he lists off a few of these commands that that he would have been well acquainted with. This is a, you know what these things are. Kind of implying, it sounds like, that if you want to enter the kingdom, live by the law of God, right? If you want to be in the kingdom of God, then you have to live by the, the rules. You have to live by the law that the king has, uh, has established. And again, the question of goodness is right at the heart of this. The, the goodness of Jesus, or the goodness of God alone, and the question of the goodness of this man. Is he good? So he says, well, you know the commandments. And if you're good, if you're good, then you'll be keeping these commandments. And if you're keeping these commandments, then you, you belong to the kingdom, right? You are in the kingdom. And so the man says in verse 20, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Really? All of these commands and etc. at et all as it goes on and on, right? All of these commands you've kept from your youth. Wow! This man must be good. This is an impressive fellow. Right? I have kept all of these commands from my youth. And this reveals his own self-righteousness because no person if they're truly honest and or aware of themselves would really say to jesus yeah i've kept all your commands i'm, I'm about in a thousand it's great right oh if all it takes to get into the kingdom is to perfectly obey your law count me in i've been doing this the whole time right Who has the audacity to say that to Jesus except someone who is convinced of his own goodness, who is convinced of his own righteousness? I'm good. I've been a very good boy all year, we say in our letters to Santa, right? So here's a principle, the first principle I'll point out. In our conversations and efforts to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, look for ways to expose self-righteousness. Look for ways to expose self-righteousness. That's what Jesus is doing here. That when Jesus points hangs on to the goodness question, why do you call me good? And he gives him these laws. Well, if you want to be in the kingdom, just keep all these laws. And the man sort of so he gives him a little bit of rope and the man kind of ties it around his neck, right? Oh, I've kept all those laws. Oh, okay. All right? Your heart has been revealed here. The heart that you are trusting in your own righteousness, in your own goodness, is Exposed, And so there's something important and strategic about finding and exposing elements of self-righteousness in people. Because at the end of the day, most if not all of us are prone towards self-righteousness. We want to justify ourselves, right? We want to feel better about ourselves. When we get to the end of the day and we lay our heads on our pillow, we want to be able to think, I did a good job today, I did what I was supposed to do, I kept, uh, kept my head down and did my work, and uh, I maybe even loved my neighbor or took care of my family or whatever it is. Like we, want, we want to think we're doing a good job, and people everywhere have that instinct, right? They, they want to feel like they're good. And there's nagging guilt, and there's this sense of like, eh, I'm probably messing up in some ways, but we kind of have ways of rationalizing those things down. Well, and it, I mean, nobody's perfect, of course, right? But I'm doing pretty good, right? And Jesus wants to draw this man's self-righteousness to the surface so that he can address what's really keeping him from the kingdom. So he doesn't just come right out and say it. When he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He doesn't say... Uh, You should forsake your self-righteousness and trust in, in my righteousness. He doesn't just spell that out. He sort of strategically, in the course of conversation, draws it to the surface. The good news of the gospel answers the bad news of human sin and God's wrath. Right? God is holy. We are sinners. We are living under his wrath. There is judgment to come. That's bad news. We can't be righteous enough. We can't be good enough to sort of earn our way into God's uh, good graces. And so the gospel answers that problem. But if a person is convinced that he's good, right? If a person is convinced, not, God and I are are, are on good terms, right? I'm, I'm doing well. Then he won't have ears to hear the gospel of a righteousness outside of himself that's been purchased for him by Christ's death. And so there's a, there's a need to find a way to draw out the, the self-righteousness, the self-justifying instinct that exists in most people. Well, that's not true of every single person. That may not be the, the presenting issue or the surface issue for everyone. And there are certainly those who, who feel really badly about themselves. And maybe their biggest hurdle is that they can't believe that God's grace would be enough to recover over their sin. But that's not the case for For many. And so we need to find a way, following the lead of the Spirit and thinking and and considering, looking for doorways to sort of bring this out. And, And maybe ask the question in some way are you trusting in your own goodness for your standing with God? I think it's something we should pray for, pray that God would reveal. To us In those conversations, Lord, help, us, help me to see where there may be some self-righteousness, some self-justifying, and, and, and break through it. John Calvin said, man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. And I think a lot of times we can feel decent about ourselves because we're often comparing ourselves to other people. At least I'm not like that guy. right? At least my life ain't a wreck like that one. Right? Man, well, my family, yeah, like I yelled at my kid today or or whatever, but like, man, I'm putting food on the table and I got a roof over their head, and you know, like most fathers aren't even doing that much. You know, like we have ways of sort of making ourselves feel better about our own goodness when we're comparing ourselves to other people. But the problem is, every other person we're comparing ourselves to is also a sinner, is also broken, and is in the very same boat that's taken on water and is going down. Right? So, the only way to really understand our lack of goodness is to contrast ourselves with the holiness of God. And when we stand in the presence of God and we consider His holiness and His perfection and His righteousness, our claims to goodness start to feel very hollow indeed. So, look for ways to expose self righteousness. I love the next phrase. It's short, but it's amazing. So look at verse 20. He said to him, teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. Verse 21 says, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So before he delivers the the message here, go and sell all that you have. We get this commentary from Mark. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And it was in love that Jesus thereby issues this challenge. And there's principle number two it's simply this love the people you're trying to reach. Love the people you're trying to reach. Don't love the idea of evangelism don't love the idea of a conversion don't love the idea of a growing church don't love the idea of like success and fruit and like wow we're going to get ourselves on the cover of some christian magazine right that love the person that you're trying to reach and jesus never he has He has a macro mission, right? He has this big, global, I'm going to go to a cross and die for the sins of all who will ever trust in me. That's a huge mission, but he never loses sight of the individual that's before him. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. That's a challenge to us. Love the people that we're trying to reach. I mean, it's amazing to me that it doesn't say, Jesus, looking at him, rolled his eyes. Right? Or Jesus, looking at him, laughed hysterically. You've kept all these commands since your youth? Come on, dude, I've been watching you. Right? Or Jesus, looking at him, uh, uh, silently screamed on the inside. Like, how do I deal with this man's hypocrisy? Right? No, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus loved him. We ought to love the people that we're trying to reach. And so now comes the crux of the message that he gives to this man. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. So he's suggesting take all your possessions, sell them for as much as you can get, and then take the money that you've earned from your sales and give the money to the poor. And then you come follow me. Like once you no longer have things, right? Once you no longer have any money, then you can come and... Follow me. And again, the reason Jesus is doing this is because he's getting below the surface and drawing something out. Just as when he asked a question about goodness, he was drawing out from below the surface this man's self-reliance and self-righteousness. Now, this command to sell everything that he owns and give it to the poor and then come follow Jesus is drawing to the surface the man's true love, right? Because he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And essentially, the answer that Jesus gives is, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. Is that always what God calls everybody to do? Is a faithful Christian supposed to not own anything? Right. So so is this a universal command? Oh, wow, if I want to be faithful to Jesus, I have to sell everything that I have and I have to give everything that I earn to the poor. I don't think so. I don't think that's what he's getting. I don't think he's making a new universal sort of rule about ownership of things or about possession and stewardship of resources. I think what he's doing is drawing out an idol in this man's heart. Because, verse 22 says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Okay, now we see where this guy's heart really is. We see where his affections really lie. He wants to inherit eternal life, but only if it doesn't cost that much, right? Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's hoping for something like, just make a tweak here or there. Just on top of all the other things you do with your money, just give a little bit to the church or just give a little bit to some charity, right? He's looking for little tweaks, is, is there something I can adjust just a little bit to make me better, on better terms with God so that I can hear eternal life? And the answer to that, of course, is no. There's not. Jesus isn't interested in little tweaks. Sinners don't need little tweaks. Sinners need new hearts. Sinners need transformation from the inside out to be acceptable to God. They don't need a tweak here and there. Principle number three, be on the lookout for idols. Be on the lookout for idols. Usually when you're talking with somebody, you'll start to see idols emerge. Because people love something. And if it's not God at the top, it's an idol. All right? now, usually that's not going to be something physical or visible or really obvious. Although I've been in situations like that. I went to a trip in, in Cuba and I went into people's homes to share the gospel with people in their houses. And most of the people in this little village in Cuba had actual physical like idols in their houses. And they sort of just took them all. You know, like, I'll pray to that God, and I'll pray to this one, and I'll do a little bit for that one. They had all kinds of little things in their houses. Uh, it's a pretty, uh, pretty unsettling experience, actually. So most people that we're talking to in our culture probably aren't going to have actual physical idols that they're bowing down to. But <laughs> what are the loves? What are the obsessions? What are the hang-ups that are keeping a person from Jesus? What are they reluctant to lay down? When you start talking to somebody about what it means to follow Jesus and the the point at which they go, I don't know about that. I don't know if I'm willing to take that step or go that far. I don't know that I'm willing to walk away from this family tradition or, or this goal or personal aspiration that I have or this... Particular activity that I actually really enjoy that God seems to say is sinful and wrong. Like I don't know that I'm willing to give that up. That is where the idolatry exists, right? We're, we've put this person has put something else above the Lord. Which points us to the reality that following Jesus has a cost. It might, he might not literally require you to sell all of your possessions, although he might, right? Who's to say that God wouldn't say to somebody, hey, bro, I want you to sell everything you have and move across the world and preach the gospel to somebody, right? I mean, he can do that. I think he doesn't. So he might call you to sell everything that you have and give to the poor, but that's not necessarily what it will require. But Jesus says himself that if we aren't willing to leave homes and families and livelihoods for his sake, then we're not worthy of him. Following Jesus has a cost. In the famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says famously, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. There's a dying to self. There's a dying to my hopes and plans and, and aspirations. There's a dying to the loves that sort of captivate my heart because everything has to be reoriented around Jesus and his kingdom. It's not a tweak. It's a, it's a total reorientation Of life. And so when we're talking with those who don't yet know him, and we're we're telling them about the good news of the kingdom, inviting them into it, be on the lookout for where those idols start to emerge. And those are the places that God has to work to break through those barriers. And by the way, idols don't only live in the hearts of unbelievers lest we put ourselves off the hook too quickly. God's people have a bit of a checkered history when it comes to keeping God as the first and greatest treasure in their hearts as well. Just look at the Bible, read through the Old Testament. It's pretty obvious, right? Look at your own heart. Chances are you might identify something that at times uh, rises above your love for and value on the Lord and his kingdom. That's an idol. That's idolatry. Beware of idols in your own heart. Be always laying them down and laying them down again for the sake of Jesus and his glory. Ask him today, what do I need to give up? What is getting in the way of my wholehearted pursuit of Jesus and his kingdom? So Jesus challenges the young man to sell his possessions because he discerned idolatry in his heart and the guy of course proves jesus right by his response he went away sad not willing to give that up no if that's what it takes never mind i'm happy with my stuff and then the rest of the passage is jesus debriefing with his disciples so the guy walks away And then Jesus turns to his disciples and starts to talk about what they just saw and what he says in verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So he points out a spiritual danger of riches. We don't need to go far enough as to say that there's a, there's a moral uh, uh, imperative to be poor or to suggest that it's always morally wrong to be wealthy, but we would be right to say Jesus points to this as a danger. This is a, this is a, a road that is fraught with pitfalls and ditches to fall into. Those who have wealth, those who have a lot of stuff, a lot of resources, will have a hard time getting into the kingdom. Probably most of us don't consider ourselves rich, but if you were to do just even a quick sort of Google of the averages across the globe of what people earn... Even poor Americans or low-middle-class Americans are well above the vast majority of people on planet Earth when it comes to resources and riches and, uh, and, and things that are even available to us through government aid and whatever else, right? So most of us would probably fall into this category of those who have wealth. It's easy to kind of read this and go, oh, he's just talking about the billionaires of the world. This is just about Jeff Bezos or something. No, this is about a lot more than that, right? Well, what makes it hard for a rich person to get into the kingdom? What is it about wealth that makes it difficult to enter the kingdom? I've got three thoughts for you on this. I'll go through them quickly. Number one, wealth blinds a human heart to its own deficiency and need. Wealth blinds a human heart to its own deficiency. I've got everything I need. I'm good. I'm not hungry because I can go down to the store and buy some food. I don't, need, I don't need shelter because I've already bought a house or I'm renting this apartment or whatever it is, right? Um, anything that I need, I have. If I'm sick, I just go down to the doctor. I've got insurance that covers it or whatever, right? So we have all that we need. So people with wealth think they have everything that they need, which, by the way, is the opposite of what Jesus portrayed about children in verse 14, right? When he said, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And then he said to whoever whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. A child recognizes I don't have the resources. I don't. I need things from others. I need my parents or 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 family members or, or whatever to to help me. Right? Kids just sort kind of instinctively know that. But people with wealth think I'm good. I don't need anything. And so. It, it keeps them insulated from the hardships and the maladies that affect others. I think that's another sort of aspect of this. It, uh, the, 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 the things that often are troubles for people without money just don't bother us. They don't come close to us. I read an article uh, this week that actually suggested that people who live in the suburbs tend to uh, be less concerned about social injustices because on the whole, they experience a whole lot less of them. People in the suburbs with a lot of resources don't have the same kinds of experiences with injustice as people in, uh, say, urban communities or with less wealth and less resources. And so we're like, what's the big deal? Life's been good to me, right? My experience as Americans has been great. I've got no problems, so what's why, what's everybody fussing about? Wealth blocks us from those experiences a lot of times. And so it keeps us from... It, 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 tricks us into thinking, I don't have any need. I don't have any weaknesses. I have everything that I need. Another reason that wealth makes it difficult for someone to enter the kingdom is that it distracts the heart's attention and affections onto earthly things. Jesus said that very plainly in Matthew 6 verses 20 and 21 where he said, Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, or thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be Also, Wherever your accumulation of stuff is, that's where you're going to be paying attention. That's where you're going to be making to make sure that my stuff is safe, right? And so if my stuff is here, if I'm accumulating wealth here on the earth, then where's my attention? Where's my affection? Right here on the things of earth. So I'm not thinking about Jesus and his kingdom and stuff that's like, well, after I die, oh, come on, that's so far down the road, I'm probably going to live forever, right? I mean, that's the kind of, That's the kind of attitude that we tend to have. Rich Mullins has a song where he says, the stuff of earth competes for the allegiance I owe only to the giver of all good things. And that is a a wrestling match in hearts every day. The stuff of earth is trying to get our attention and our allegiance and our, our commitment. And Jesus is saying, put that aside. Lay it aside. Follow me. And finally, I would say, wealth is subtly connected with goodness. Back to the question of the man's own uh, self-righteousness. Sometimes we, somebody might think, I'm rich because God has blessed me. Right? The reason I have a lot of resources is because God is looking at my life and going, hey, thumbs up. You're doing good, man. I'm going to give you a lot of resources. I'm going to give you a lot of money. I'm going to give you a lot of stuff. I must be doing something right. Look at all this money that I have. And that's apparently a connection that the disciples make. Because when Jesus says how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom, they're like, then who the heck even has a chance, right? If a rich person can't get in, how are we going to make it? Because in their mind, somehow, wealth is connected to to righteousness. The disciples were amazed at his words, verse 24. Jesus said to them again, maybe it's important if he's repeating it, children, children. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And now we're using a bit of hyperbole. The biggest beast that they would know of at that time, a camel and the eye of a needle, probably the smallest thing they could think of. It's easier for to get a beast of burden through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to get into the kingdom of God. And their minds are blown. And they say to him, then who can be saved, right? If the wealthy can't get in, then can't nobody get in because they're the ones that have it together. They're the ones that God is blessing. And Jesus' answer to that question is really interesting. Verse 27, says, Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. So that's the answer. How, who, who, could, who could possibly be saved? In a sense, they're right to feel this sort of incredulity about this. Why does anybody have the right to be in the kingdom of God? Ah, now you're getting somewhere. Nobody has the right to be in the kingdom of God. God's holy. We're sinners. You don't get into the kingdom of God by your own goodness, by your own righteousness, because you don't have it. So when you start going, oh man, how, how am I possibly going to get in? How, am I, how are we going to make it there? Now you're on the right track. Jesus is like, "Ah, okay, we can start to work with that. If you're at the place where you're like, I don't know what to do. What what do I buy? What 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 do I say? What what acts do I need to to perform? How how do I get in? I don't know what to do. When you start to get to the end of your own resources and you realize that even your wealth ain't going to help you when it comes time to stand before God on judgment day, that's where Jesus is like, okay, we're on the right path. And so what he says here is, with man, it's it's impossible. Period. Man can't save himself. No human being gets into the kingdom of God on his own. But with God, all things are possible. Principle number four. Believe that God can do the impossible. Believe that God can do the impossible. Now this guy in this passage walked away at least to our knowledge, didn't receive the good news of the kingdom. Who knows? If sometime down the road, the words of Jesus didn't rattle around in his mind and heart and God reached him somehow, we don't have the window into that. So it won't always go this way. But with God, all things are possible. Who do you think is beyond the reach of God's grace? Who do you think is so far gone, so stubborn, so set in their ways, so hostile to the faith that you're like, there's no way that God could ever save that person. Now, with man, it's impossible. You're right. But all things are possible with God. Don't give up. Don't write somebody off. God can still save. The passage ends with this, uh, with an exchange between Peter and Jesus. Peter, in verse 28, began to say to him, well, see, we have left everything. And followed you, so kind of pointing back to the conversation with the, the rich man. Jesus said, "Sell all that you have, give to the poor, and then come follow me." And he wouldn't do it. Peter's kind of like, "Well, we did. We don't have anything. We left our jobs, we left our families, and we followed you. We're not home, right?" And Jesus said to him, "Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands." For my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold, now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. We should leave that part out, Jesus. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Here's the final, the fifth principle I'll share with you, based on Jesus' words there in verse 30 share the return on investment that comes with following Jesus. He front loads the, the story, the conversation with the cost of following Jesus, right? What, what he leads with is it's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you your idols. It's going to cost you your the things that you love and are committed to. It's going to cost you your wealth. And the dude is not even willing to go beyond that. Okay, well, I'm done. But what he says to his disciples here, as a reassurance to them, because they have left, right? They did leave livelihoods and families and and work and home behind. What he says to them as a reassurance is, listen, it's worth it. Yes, you're leaving stuff behind. Yes, you're laying stuff down. But you're going to receive a hundredfold, a hundred times more what you lose by following me. Now, be, be clear. I don't think he means here literal wealth, literal houses and lands. So it's not like, well, if you'll just give up that little house you've got, God will give you a really big house. Like, I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think that's what he's after. And, and people have a way of twisting these things, going, oh, look, Jesus really wants us to be you know, healthy, wealthy, and, and wise. That's, that's not what he's after here. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, when we follow Jesus, when we release our grip on all those things, those loves, those idols, those, those barriers, and we turn to Jesus in faith and, and say yes to him, he makes up for it in other ways. I, I think even specifically in terms of relationships, he says no one who's left father or mother or children will not receive a hundredfold more brothers and sisters and mothers and children. I think there he's talking about the family of God. Yeah, you might lose, or, 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 you know, there might be severed family relationships that come if you start following Jesus. But you're going to gain a new family, right? You're going to be a part of of, of a church family where there's brothers and sisters and spiritual mothers and fathers and spiritual children to do this thing together with. And houses and lands, yeah, you've left those behind. But Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, uh, in my father's house are many rooms, right? I'm, I'm going to prepare a place for you. There's houses and lands and a new heaven and a new earth that are far beyond anything that we can imagine or esteem in this life. There's more, a hundred times more now in this life. And then in the age to come, eternal life. The things you think are so important, the things you are you have such a hard time letting go of here, because you're like, but what about my. Traveling soccer league or what about my promotion at work or what about whatever it is, the thing that you are like clinging to? What about that relationship or that marriage or that child or nothing that you are clinging to right here is really going to give you life in the fullest sense. The abundant life that Jesus came to give is only found in laying our lives down and giving everything to him. And he says here, there's a return on that investment, right? The return on investment is a business term that speaks of the, the gains that, that come based on the, the investments that we make. So yeah, we're we're giving things up, but don't think of it as sacrificing, think of it as investing. I'm investing my family, I'm investing my wealth, I'm investing my life into the kingdom of God. And he says the return on that investment is gonna be a hundredfold. And you can't even see it. You can't even imagine the kind of fullness in this life and in the one to come that Jesus has prepared for you, along with persecutions. Ugh. Why is that got to be in there, right? I thought when I came to Jesus, everything was going to get easy, right? Didn't, I, didn't that, the, the smiling family on the billboard like, yeah, come to our church and you'll be happy. That's not the, that's not the way that it is. But even in the hardships, even in the persecutions, we have the presence of God in our lives. We have the strength and encouragement of brothers and sisters and children and fathers and mothers that we've gained through, the, uh, through our relationship with him and the church. So don't be afraid to speak not only of the cost of discipleship, but also of the return. Yeah, you do have to give stuff up, but there's so much to be gained that you can't even foresee right now. Don't be afraid to speak about it those things and be convinced of that in your own heart. When I follow Jesus he returns blessing. Maybe not in the ways that I'm thinking or planning for but it'll be better than I envision. Well how about you? What is the Lord calling you to leave behind in order to follow Jesus? What are you hanging on to? Is it uh, a habit, a sinful practice or addiction? Is it some tradition? A family obligation? A sense of needing to measure up somehow to religious standards? Maybe it's just comfort, security, a job, you know? I don't want to give up. I'm afraid if I follow Jesus, he's gonna ask me to do something uncomfortable and I like being comfortable, so not willing to do it, right? What what is it that is Holding you back from giving everything to Jesus. When Jesus says to the the rich man, give all that you have and or sell all that you have and give to the poor and follow me, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. I think he's talking about eternal life. If you give up what the world sees as success, if you'll give up what the world thinks of as treasure and follow me. You'll have real treasure that lasts. Moth and rust, don't destroy. Thieves, don't break in and steal. Right? It's, you're going to be with me in a new heaven and a new earth forever. Don't get stuck on the stuff of earth. Set your heart on the goodness of Jesus and follow him in faith. And If you haven't done that before, we would love to talk with you more about what that looks like and how you can give up. The things that are holding you back from following him and gain a hundredfold from the hand of Jesus in this life and in the one to come. Let's pray.